appreciate Serene so much, and it's, it's a joy to see someone who loves Jesus, and not only him, but his family, and uh, so uh, it, it's always a joy to get together with you guys, so I'm glad you get to have a few days away, so enjoy, enjoy. Luke chapter 22, we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 20 this morning, and uh, in Luke chapter 22, well, well actually, the, the, the series that we've been in uh, for a little bit now has been... Uh, what does it look like to be a disciple? What are the demands uh, of a disciple? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And we've been looking at a variety of different aspects of that, the, the things that Jesus uh, talks about in the Gospels. And today might be one that you haven't thought about. <laughs> that you, didn't, you don't necessarily, I, I don't think anyway, like we necessarily readily go, okay, what it means to be a disciple is to be someone who remembers. <laughs> like that doesn't... I'm, I'm thinking you, that doesn't come to your mind. Like it means to be a person who is constantly remembering the faithfulness and the goodness of God, and reminding ourselves over and over and over again. And so today we're gonna we're gonna actually uh, go to a text um, that that talks about the Lord's Supper and the first moment in which uh, it became the Lord's Supper, the Passover in a sense, a transition. And uh, and so we're gonna be looking at, at Luke 22 verses uh, 14 to 20 in that. And, and particularly in the fact that Jesus, just reminding ourselves that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, and therefore we don't have to lose heart. And I thought, as I was preparing this, uh, I looked this passage up on my computer, and I realized that about four years ago, uh, this was the very first message that Nick asked me to speak on, was Luke chapter 22. <laughs> so I've already given this message, and I, so I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, huh. It's actually really fitting because the whole point of this message is to remember, to remind ourselves, not of some new, fantastic truth, but the, the, really, the really big, glorious truth of God's goodness to us in Christ, and to be reminded of that over and over and over again. And so I'm going to speak it again. Uh, it's been tweaked a little, but we're going to talk through it again. Um, as we think about this year, <clears throat> before I read the passage... Um, you could just kind of think in your own minds. I know that for many of us, uh, in, in not, not out there somewhere, but many of us and many in this community um, have faced a lot of chaos. It has been a challenging year. I don't know anyone that I talk to that just is like, I wish this year would go away. I wish it would just be done. Uh, when you think about the, the chaos of coronavirus, uh, when you think about financial ruin, um, when you think about, um, just, just let me just go through a list of some things right here. And these are not things out in the, in the United States. I'm talking about right here in our community, right around our church, in real people's lives. Uh, when you talk about death, um, domestic violence, um, drug and alcohol abuse, suicide that's, that's on the, an extremely... Uh, significant rise right around us, especially with young teenagers. When you think about the racial tension that has gone on in our country and even right here, when you think about riots that are going on all around us, um, protests, political unrest, murder, uh, or just, let me just throw out the word uh, injustice. I don't know about you, but uh, I, for me, I, that word kind of sums up. It feels like just live in a time in which the scales of justice are completely out of whack, right? 
And in all kinds of ways, not just the way that you're thinking, but in so many ways, it's so many angles, things just seem completely messed up, right? It seems like a mess. And so when we come to this passage this morning, I, I thought about in leading into this, to we, we sort of pan out a little bit and look at the, a, a greater context right before chapter 22. And chapter 22 in Luke is a, is a transition in Luke. Because chapters 22 to 23 are, are going to focus entirely on the, the very moments right before and the, the moment of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. And, and so in this transition, right before this passage, in Luke chapter 21, uh, and, and we don't have time to go into the context of that, of that but I'm just going to share, Jesus is talking to the disciples in light, of, in light of things that are going to take place. And he says to them, in verse 34, he says, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down by the, by, with dissipation and drunkenness, and I, this, this seems so fitting, and the cares of this life. He says, stay awake, in verse 36. Pray that you may have strength to escape all these things. Um, I thought, what a, fitting, what a fitting word for us as we lead into this passage on, really, on the Lord's Supper. As we think about the cares of this life, that in the midst of, in fact, let me just ask you, have you found yourself caught up in the cares of this life? Have you found yourself a little wee bit distracted? The heart weighed down by the things that are going on around you? And I think if you don't find yourself in that, then you're living under a rock, Right? Then, you, then, then maybe, maybe there's not life going on inside of you if you haven't found yourself weighed down and feeling heavy at times about the things of this, life, this world, the things that are going on. And so, so Jesus, even in talking to the disciples, saying, be careful that you don't get weighed down by the cares of this life, that it doesn't distract you from that which is most important. And we have so many reasons to be distracted and to be taken away, to get our eye off of the ball and to miss the big picture, to miss the things that God is doing and to miss what is most important. And so in this text today, in this little passage that we're going to look at, Jesus is giving us, he's given to his people something to do for all of, all of history until he returns again. He's given us something to do that is supposed to, on a regular basis, bring us back to that which is absolutely of utmost importance, the cross of Christ. He's, he's given us a way to remind ourselves, and that's what, that's what the Lord's table is about, reminding ourselves again and again and again and again, day in, week out, reminding ourselves about the Lord's death. That he's defeated death, in fact, by death. And so, with that in mind, let us uh, stand as we read God's word this morning. In Luke chapter 22, uh, we're going to read verses 14 to 20. We're going to kind of look at the big picture, but we're going to look in particular to those verses. Luke chapter 14, or 22, 14 to 20. We stand as we read God's word just to, just to sort of in a sense, symbolize the fact that we are honoring God's word, that these are not my words or your words, but these are the very words of God to us today um, from God himself. He says in verse 14, And when the hour had come, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, for that from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, Do this in remembrance of me. Or this, this cup, actually, is poured out for you in the new covenant of my blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you bless the teaching of your word today. May your word encourage your people. May we today, even in this very next moments, may each minute be a moment to bring us back in the midst of the cares of this life, to bring us right back to the most important thing in all of history, Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Remind us today of why it is so crucial. May we be those who do not lose heart no matter what is taking place around us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. There's three, three sort of sex ways that we're going to talk about this passage. Uh, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper in terms of its historical significance. And really the whole thing is about the historical significance. But we're going to talk about it in terms of the, its redemptive significance. And then lastly, we're going to talk about it in terms of its personal significance. And so, so first of all, the historical significance of this text. Uh, I think it's crucial for us when we read the Bible to realize that God is sovereignly working in and through real people real, in real time, in real places, and through real events to accomplish his purposes for all of history, all of eternity. Think about that for a minute. He's working through real people. Not some extraordinary superhuman people. These characters in the Bible woke up every single day and put their jeans and, well, what they wore, but they put their clothes on and they, and they went to work. <laughs> uh, they they did, tried to feed their families. They tried to make a living. They tried to parent their children. They tried to, make, to, to do what they needed to do every single day, just like you and I. Normal people. People that were not of extraordinary, you know, high uh, and that's what Paul says anyway, they were not of noble birth, just normal people. And God, through very normal people in very real places and real time through real events, is accomplishing incredibly extraordinary things. And this is no different. You can see in this text, you'll see this very thing. Just think about this, the big picture. Jesus, even his birth as we celebrate that this Christmas season, you have, you have real people involved in that whole scenario, none of which, you have to know, none of which understood what was actually going on in, in the big, big picture, right? They had no idea, right? From Jesus's, Jesus being born, he, he lived, he was rejected, he was hated, abandoned, betrayed, denied, condemned, spit upon, flogged, he was mocked, pierced, he was killed, and it says, all according to the will of God. That all happened. It was God's will, Peter says in, in the first sermon he preached at Pentecost. He says it was the Lord's will, right, that Jesus would be handed over and be crucified. And yet, how was God's will accomplished? It was accomplished in real time, in real places, with real characters, with real drama. 
things that are really difficult and hard. God was working out his, his redemptive history, and yet he was doing it in very real ways, which I think is an incredible encouragement to every one of us to realize that, that God is doing the very same thing in your life right here today. Everything matters. You, have, you and I have woke up this morning and we have no idea of the eternal significance of every conversation, every smile, every word, every prayer that you utter, every phone call you're going to make, every person that you encounter annoyingly at the grocery store these days or in traffic, every little thing. God is working stuff out in the midst of those events, extraordinary things through real ordinary people such as us. Just think about this. It, this, this, this text tells us, right before we get to the, the verses that we're going to look at, it tells us that, that this was the time of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So this was, this was April-ish, spring. This is Nisan, according to the Jewish calendar, 14. And, and 14 would be the day in which they would prepare for the Passover meal, right? So this is a... Th- Luke is, does an amazing job of making these little historical markers to let us know, like, these are, these are real moments and real places, right? If you go back to chapter 3, if you were reading through this for Advent, just read the beginning of chapter 3. It's hilarious, actually, uh, because he's just, like, given all this detail. Well, Herod, the, Herod's uncle, and, you know, it's almost like he just goes through all these people. He's, he's letting us know these are real events. These are real people happening in real time. And so this is the time of the Passover, a, a, a Passover that was celebrated every single year at the same time. It was another year people would make the pilgrimage to come to Jerusalem. It was in a real place, and they would celebrate the Passover just like they did the year before that, and the year before that, and the year before that. But they had no idea that this year was going to be a little bit different. Something incredibly significant was going to happen. We have, we have chief priests in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 21. It says chief priests and scribes were there. And what were they doing? This, uh, this drama is unfolding behind the scenes, right? There was conniving. There was deception going on. They were trying to manipulate circumstances to figure out what it says in verse 2, to how to put Jesus to death. So behind the scenes, there's all this, all this drama and chaos unfolding. They're trying to figure out a way to manipulate circumstances and politicians and, and people in order to put Jesus to death, to just get rid of this nuisance to them. And then in verse 3, we find out that there's this incredible character also working. His name is Satan, right? That I know in our sophisticated society, you know, it seems like such a fairy tale thing, Right? But I don't think it's very hard to believe that there is a real Satan who is evil, who is working, who is the enemy of your soul and my soul, who is working behind the scenes to create chaos and despair and disillusionment and, and problems, right? And we see here that Satan, it says, enters into this guy named Judas, who we know from John chapter 12 was a, was a thief who was dipping his hand into the purse and stealing out of the coffers. He was not a very good guy, and it's, it's no wonder Satan, like, he, he basically finds the guy with the greatest weakness, and he, he, he goes in for the kill and, and manipulates him and gets him to, to basically turn Jesus over for 30 shekels of silver. And so we have Judas in the story. We have, we have all kinds of drama going on. And then you'll notice Jesus. <laughs> of course, Jesus is here and, and Jesus is calm. <laughs> He's completely in charge. I think it's, it's ironic to just think about Jesus as going, hey, uh, Peter and John, 
uh, why don't you guys kind of pulls them aside secretly because it's not quite time for him to die yet, right? Pulls them aside secretly and says, uh, why don't you guys go into town? You're going to find a guy with water, carrying a jar of water. When you find him, follow him. <laughs> He's going to take you to the master's house. So we got the guy with the jar of water. We don't know who he was, just an ordinary dude. Leads them to the master's house. And so there's the master of the house. They go to the master's house, and Jesus says, it's there that you're going to get all the stuff, and you're going to prepare the Passover meal. So in other words, Peter and John are going to go by themselves. Uh, I think it's probably because if, uh, if Jesus had told ever, all the disciples that these preparations of where they were taking place, then Judas probably would have betrayed Jesus right there at the Last Supper, right? Like, he was looking for a place and a time to turn Jesus over to the, to the Jewish leaders. And so Jesus, he knows all of this, right? He's like, hey, Peter and John, hey, go find the dude with the jar. Follow him to the house. Make the preparations. We'll come later. <laughs> That's exactly what he does. You see how this is unfolding? These people are just ordinary people. God is working out something incredible. And in fact, in this very meal, this, this what is called the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper, this, this very meal itself is going to become a picture, a beautiful picture of, of the fulfillment of God's promises throughout all of history. And God's working it out in the midst of real circumstances and real days and real time. Um, let me just give you a little more picture before we jump into the redemptive significance of this. Um, I was thinking about this this morning and talking it out with Christy. Um, I thought about a young, I'm not a young man, <laughs> I thought about a friend of mine who was one of my best friends in high school. His name is Justin. And Justin, when I became a Christian as an 18-year-old uh, senior in high school, uh, Justin Herman was probably one of the guys who made the most fun of me and mocked me and made my life really miserable. And he was a, a best friend, him and his brother, Travis. Uh, I spent a ton of time in his jacuzzi uh, at his house after every sporting event, and we pretty much lived over there at his house. Um, and Justin was not a Christian, obviously, and he, he just... He just mocked me and made fun of me when I became a Christian, uh, did everything he could to make my life miserable. And it was, it was excruciating in some ways. And a number of years ago, probably about 10 years ago, uh, I had the first conversation since high school with Justin. And Justin's brother, Travis, who we were all really close, two years older than him, Justin's brother, Travis, married a, a girl in my hometown named Diane who we also knew, and Travis um, came down with cancer as a young man, had three kids, uh, Hope and Izzy and Slate, and he fought this cancer for a number of years, but in the midst of his cancer, Travis became a Christian, and I mean not just any Christian, but he, he, he became an on fire, in love with Jesus believer, and Travis in, had such an impact on his family and his mom and his dad and on Justin that they too became Christians in the midst of his dying of cancer. And Justin dies of cancer. Um, Travis actually dies of cancer. Thank you, Christy. Travis dies of cancer and Justin steps in 
This is like a beautiful kinsman redeemer. Justin steps in and marries Diane and begins to parent his, his, his brother's children. And there's a little girl that they had named Hope who just about 10 years ago passed away. Hope came down with cancer. And as she was about 10 years old, she was going to downtown Denver to the hospital to get uh, treatments. And she saw all these homeless people around. And so she asked her parents, hey, can we do something to help these homeless people? And so they started this little ministry uh, where they began to make little sack lunches. And on the way to her cancer treatments, they would drop off sack lunches to homeless people. And it became a whole ministry that they did uh, every time she went to her treatments. And Hope passed away. And just a year ago, uh, a year ago, their daughter, whose name is Izzy, uh, who I can't think of, she was probably 18 years old. Her da- their daughter and son, Slate, Izzy and Slate, both came down with leukemia. And they had to come back um, from the mission field that I'll just mention briefly. And Izzy, about a year ago, just a year ago, it's on their Facebook page, Izzy passed away. And Slate has beat it so far, and he's doing fine. And I tell that story to see the incredible sadness of that story, right? You can feel the weight of it, but, but feel, the, feel the, 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 out of the ashes comes an incredible, beautiful thing. This is what God does. Through ordinary people, ordinary people, just normal people who go through death from cancer, and Justin becomes a Christian, and Justin began a ministry in Guatemala was an orphanage called House of Hope. And that, that ministry, uh, he spent uh, until his two older kids got cancer, they came back. That ministry led to the adoption and the, basically the rescuing of hundreds of children. Um, incredible uh, ministry that's still going on to this day. And, and uh, I was going to read it, but I won't take time. But uh, there's, a, there's a, on their web, on their Facebook page, you can look up Justin Herman. There's a story about Hope. And how uh, just a few days ago was her birthday, and Hope, um, she, uh, on her birthday, there's a boy, a little boy, in the house of Hope in Guatemala that just got adopted, who shares the same birthday as Hope, and they just talked about how this is just like one of many of the ways that God, out of the ashes, has brought life, eternal life, to many people, and and now they've adopted a little boy named Max from Guatemala. And uh, so they have their family in, in Colorado. And actually, Justin, he's crazy. He, uh, he just finished his fire training. He's going to be a firefighter in Denver at 48. I don't know how that happened. He's, he's in better shape than I am. But, uh, but anyway, I just, I just share that story to go, do, do you see the little ways that God, he works out eternal purposes in the midst of ordinary stuff? Death is an ordinary thing. It's happening all around. It's happened last night, right? Death and dying and cancer and difficulties and conflict and chaos and hate and divisiveness and all these things are going on all around us. And yet God is sovereignly working through your lives in ordinary people to, to accomplish things that will make an eternal difference in the lives of people. Like every single detail just like, just like the people in this story, they had, Justin Herman had no idea that God was going to do this and he was going to accomplish his purposes through the death of his brother. No idea. You and I, today, as we sit here, we have no idea what eternal purposes 
God is working out even in your being in this place this morning and hearing the word of God preached, right? We have no idea. And yet we know for sure that God is at work. We know for sure that God is gathering a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and he's doing it through us and through thousands upon thousands of people just like us, ordinary people, raising our kids, working a job, getting up every day, putting up the Christmas tree, buying gifts for our kids, ordinary people, and encountering other ordinary people, and yet for eternal, eternal purposes and so don't underestimate. I think about the book of Habakkuk that we did, where it says, God says to, the, to Habakkuk, the prophet, he says, I am doing things that you can't even imagine, right? <laughs> you wouldn't believe him, he says to Habakkuk, if I were to tell you. You wouldn't believe it. No one would write Justin's story that way. No one. I wouldn't. No one. And yet God works in some pretty extraordinary ways. In fact, <laughs> think about this. Satan enters Judas to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of shekel of silver. Think about the irony of that. That, that Satan is thinking to himself, we're going to kill this dude, right? We're going to get rid of this guy. And yet the king of the universe allows his ne- nemesis of your soul to be involved in his own demise, Right? That's how God is working things out. Here Satan is orchestrating the death of the Son of God, and he doesn't even realize that he's participating in putting in the very death that he's orchestrating is the death that is going to defeat him ultimately, right? He's twisting and turning. God is constantly bending things for his purposes, for his glory, for his good, and for your good and my good. It's it's amazing, honestly. And so... Which brings us to the redemptive significance of this, of this text. You're going, are we going to get to 14 through 20? We will. We will. I know. We will. God obviously is working these things out in order to accomplish the salvation of a people, his people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation of the world. This is what he is doing in your life right here today, in his church's life all around the world. This is what God is doing and he's doing it, and he's going to do it until, the, until it's complete, until he comes back and he restores everything to the way it ought to be in the new heavens and the new earth. This is what he promised. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he promised. He made a promise, right? He said that there would come a seed. There would become an offspring of, of Eve who would stomp on, who would, who would crush the head of Satan. He would nip at her heel, at our heel, but, but he would crush the head of Satan, right? And, and here... We see this covenant re-announced and re-promised over and over again. This promise is made in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to make make you, Israel, into a great nation. And through you is going to come one who's going to bless the whole world. And you can just see this over and over and over again, all the way up until this very moment, the the very reality of the coming of Jesus, the, the first advent of Christ, where he comes in the flesh he lives and he dies on the cross and he's resurrected. And, and this advent, this whole story looks forward to even the fullest and final completion of this where everything will be made new in the new heavens and the new earth. All things will be complete. We will live with God forever and ever and ever. This is, this is the picture. And this, this little thing that we do every single week called communion or the Eucharist, which simply means to, uh, a blessing or praise or 
the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, all kinds of things that we say, this little moment is to remind us of God's faithfulness to his promises, to remind us this is what he's up to, and to proclaim his faithfulness, to proclaim his death until he comes, as Paul says. But let me give you a little bit of the significance of this. This, this meal, in fact, this very night in chapter 22, verse 14, it says at the right hour, again, it's set in a perfect time, God's timing, when the hour had came, the right moment at the right time, it says at, at this moment they were with the apostles. And this, this Passover meal is a shadow, was intended, this whole Old Testament year, every time they did this Passover meal every year, it was a foreshadowing of this meal. It was, it was a picture, a shadowy picture of a greater reality. And this meal, this table that we're going to celebrate today is also foreshadowing an even greater day, right? An even, an even ultimate fulfillment that's going to come. And so, so what was the shadow uh, that, that this was? It was the Passover. And the Passover in particular, this, this feast of unleavened bread, this, this Passover feast, was uh, built or kind of set on the 10th plague in Exodus chapter 12. And the 10th plague, if you remember, the final plague in which God says to, to all of Egypt and to the Israelites, I am going to come and I am going to kill the firstborn son, every firstborn son in Egypt. And he says to, through Moses, to the children of Israel, he says, however, if you, in order to spare your sons, you're going you're to slaughter a lamb. And you're going to take blood, the blood of that lamb, and you're going to put it on the doorpost. And then if you read the story back in Exodus chapter 22 or 12, it's, it's an incredibly intense story, right? You, you got all of these families in their homes at night knowing that every firstborn son is going to die. Except, except for those who kill a perfect spotless lamb and take this blood from this lamb. And they put the blood on the doorpost. And when the death angel comes, he will pass over. There hence the name Passover. He'll pass over their homes and spare their firstborn sons. And all the firstborn sons in Egypt were killed. Can you imagine how intently they would have slaughtered that lamb? Dads and moms here. Your firstborn son is going to die. I, I doubt there was any arguing with God at that moment about the terms of their redemption. You think about it. Like They weren't sitting around going, surely God, come on man, can we, can we come up with some other way? We want to do it this way. You know what I mean? Like We do that today, right? We're constantly going, oh, there's other ways, right? We got it all figured out. We're telling God what's up, right? I have a feeling on this night, no one argued with God. <laughs> they had seen enough to know this was serious. Their son's life was at stake. I have a feeling they, with resolute intenseness, slaughtered that lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, and they saw the redemption of their sons. They saw them be saved. No discussion. In this, in this text... This is the picture, this 10th this plague, this Passover meal is the picture. So the disciples go up to the, to the room, the, to the house, the master's house. They prepare this Seder meal, right? All the, all the different uh, elements of it. They have the lamb that they're going to eat. They, they're, 
they're going to have the bitter herbs, and they're going to have the wine. They're going to put this whole meal together. Each, each aspect of this meal symbolizes an aspect of that night, of that night when the tenth plague unfolded, and God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them, brought them out uh, as free people. And so Jesus says to them, you'll notice in verse 14, he says that when the hour had come, they reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal. <laughs> he has been eager. You, you get the sense in which, when, when you use the word earnest in Greek, it's like an intensity. I, am, I have looked forward to this moment. Like, this is huge. I have, I, it's been hard to wait for this moment. I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. And when? When did he want to eat it with them? It says before he suffered. Again, in real time. And so he has been looking forward to this. And let me just give a couple reasons. I think, why would he be earnestly looking forward to this moment with them? And these are just a few things I think of. Uh, Number one, the festival, the Passover festival, was the key festival which represented the deliverance of Egypt, right? Just that alone was a significant thing. Israelites, Jewish people for all of, all of history have looked forward to the Passover. Like it's a significant moment. So Jesus is, is looking forward to sharing this with them. But he also knows that he himself, and he's going to interpret this whole thing this way, he himself is going to be the true and final Passover lamb. I think of the words of John the Baptist when he saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, sitting there in that moment, sharing this meal with them, knew full well that he would be the final Passover lamb. There'd be no need for any more Passover meals. Jesus would be the final lamb of God. I'm sure he also knew that this symbolized the salvation of of his people of a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And it also looked forward. It looked forward to another meal. You notice what Jesus, in fact, says here. He says, for I tell you, he says, I've earnestly desired to do this, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he says it again when it refers to the fruit of the vine, sharing the fruit of the vine with them. He says, I will not also drink this until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God, until it's complete. In other words, it's looking forward to another meal, another feast, which is called in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That, that feast, that great moment when all of God's people, redeemed from all of time, will be gathered around this incredible feast, this meal that we will share. And so it looks forward to that, the new heavens and the new earth. It looks forward to the completion and Jesus says, I'm not going to eat it again. In fact, you heard me when I read it. I said in verse 18 for, or 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it again. In the Greek, the tense there, some, some translations put the word again there because it's, it, that's the tense of it. He's, he is going to eat it tonight in this moment, but he's not going to eat it again until that day in which it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God being complete. And so Jesus, in this moment, he takes the bread And he's going to reinterpret this whole thing. Imagine these disciples knew what the Passover meal was all about. They knew all of it. They knew all the details, all the little symbols that were there. They knew all of it. And Jesus, in this moment, is going to, he's going to sort of overlay this with a greater fulfillment himself. What is just about to take place, it hasn't happened yet. Jesus 
He takes the bread and he takes the cup and he says, this is my body. Now, I, I just have to imagine, I don't know, I'm, I think these ways, I have to imagine the disciples were kind of looking around going, that's not the way this goes, <laughs> right? They have done this every year, right? They know this, this meal is, is pretty set. If you've ever done a Seder meal, you, would, you, you, you know, like, it, it's a pretty detailed meal with very detailed guidelines, and it's all laid out. And they would have understood this, and Jesus is sort of like breaking all the rules, right? He grabs the bread, and he says, this bread is my body. And they're going, what? Like, I gotta, can't you imagine that? Like, I'm just imagining it's, it's not that simple as they're going, oh, cool, that's awesome. No, I have a feeling they were a little bit perplexed. Like, okay, <laughs> what, what is this, Right? And, and so they said, this, this bread is my body, and then this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, I think they would have understood that. I think that would have clicked. Jeremiah chapter 31, right? They would have, they would have thought through the new covenant. Yes, God had promised, right, in the Old Testament that he was going to make a new covenant with his people that was going to be different than the first, right? That he was going to put his spirit in them. And, and so they, they probably would have thought this out, and so Jesus reinterprets this whole thing. He is ultimately pointing it to himself and to what he is going to accomplish and saying this is ultimately, it is the fulfillment of all of God's promises throughout all of history for you and for me. Which brings us to the last point, the personal significance of this meal. The bread, he says, this is my body. And you notice he says, which is given for you. Second person, singular, you. It's a personal thing. It's personal to God's people. Jesus gave his body for you. We say this every week, but just think about that. Jesus himself sitting around with the disciples saying, I'm doing this for you. For your redemption. In my body, we pan out and look at his, in his body, all the sins that you and I have committed are going to be placed upon Jesus in the flesh, in his body. It's given for you. He says the, the cup, the wine, he says this cup is poured out for you. He says, in fact, he says uh, in verse uh, 18, 19, isn't it? Yeah, get it right. Yeah, 19, he says he took the bread when he had given thanks uh, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In verse 20 he says, and likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Covenants in the Old Testament were often, they were often sealed in blood. This is a very common thing throughout the Old Testament in all kinds of different ways. Uh, one of the common ways that we see in Genesis 17 where they would cut an animal in half and they'd put the one half here and one half there, right? And, and they would walk between these, basically symbolizing that if, if I don't hold up my end of the deal or you don't hold up your end of the deal, may, may what happened to this animal be done to us and more, right? The covenants were often bloody affairs in the Old Testament. And here Jesus is saying, this cup represents my blood, which is going to be poured out for you. When you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. In other words, when we drink the cup, when we eat the bread, we're being reminded of God's faithfulness to fulfill all of his promises. 
both past, present, and in the future. And this, this, is, this is a means for us because we tend to get weighed down by the cares of life, right? We tend to forget. We are people that forget. Why do you have traditions in your family, right? You do these things over and over again, right? It, these, are, these are significant things that remind you of important things. And, and in fact, it's not until years later that we look back at some of those things and go, man, that mattered. Christy's mom, uh, she had some of the most annoying traditions when I would go to her house as a young teenage punk. I was. I was, I was this horrible teenage kid who was dating their daughter, and, uh, and I would go over there. It was really annoying, and she thought they were annoying too. But now we look back and go, man, those were so significant. Like, we think of those things with fondness, right? Like, wow, that was important. Jesus wants us to have a means of regularly reminding ourselves of that which is of utmost importance. That Jesus Christ has given his body for you. That he spilt his blood on the cross for you. That you would be saved from your sins. That you would be rescued from sin and death and hell. That you would be brought into, reconciled in this new relationship with God. In fact, the Lord's Supper is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will what? I love this. You will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, so in the taking of the Lord's Supper, Paul also gives in that same passage an internal examination, right? We're supposed to internally examine ourselves to see to it that we, that we believe this gospel, that we are right with God, that we have embraced this salvation is for us. But also there's an outward thing, right? It's a proclamation. Every single time we eat this meal together, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until it comes. That it is through death that God has conquered death, right? Isn't that just an irony in and of itself? I love that song, uh, Christ is Risen, that talks about that. It's, it's, he's conquered death by death. It's amazing to think about that. He's conquered death, and we're to remind ourselves and proclaim it to the world. The most significant thing that the world around us needs is Jesus. They need that the greatest sacrifice that has ever taken place was so that the people would be reconciled to God through Christ, through his death, through his resurrection. And so today, it's in reverence and humility and sincerity that we come to this table and we, we do as Jesus has given us. We, we take the Lord's Supper together and we're reminded of this incredible grace that has been given to us. We're reminded of Jesus' own death on the cross, that his death absorbed your wrath, the wrath that you deserve from God for your sins, that he willingly, I love the part where Jesus says, no one took my life, will take my life from me. I willingly lay it down for you. He willingly did that for you. We're reminded of that, and we're reminded that there, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin that Jesus spilt his blood on the cross, and that blood represents the cleansing and the washing and the removal of the sin that we have, and that for every person here who's put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, God's wrath will never, ever, ever, ever be poured out on you, ever. You will never taste the wrath of God, ever, because Jesus has tasted it for you.
And we're supposed to remind ourselves of this until he comes, until the second advent, right? That's what we're going to do now. And so even as we come to Christmas, we realize that when Jesus came as a baby, he came to die. And obviously he came to be resurrected. But I want us just to pause and take Paul's words. We're to proclaim the Lord's death and remind ourselves the significance of his death, that it was for you and for me that he gave his life and poured out his blood. Let me pray for us and then let's take communion together. Father, thank you so much for your grace that is so good to us, God, that we as undeserving sinners have been given the greatest gift in all of the world. And this, this gift of grace unfolded in the midst of total chaos. Jesus was killed because of sinful people who were manipulating politics and, and circumstances in order to get him killed. And yet, God, we know that his death was the accomplishment of our salvation. So, God, we marvel at that, Lord. Help us to come today to this table and just be reminded again and again and again today of your incredible grace to us. For anyone here, Father, who is yet to trust you with their lives, may even in this moment, may they give their lives completely and wholeheartedly to you. May your spirit work mightily to convict us of our sin and to bring us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that we too can taste of your mercy and your grace, not only in this life, but Father, one day in the coming kingdom, sitting around with all of your children, celebrating for all of eternity. What a day that will be, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.